This is the State of Things broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Anita Rao. Nine months into the COVID-19 pandemic, small businesses have exhausted many of the federal provisions offered under the CARES Act, and few businesses have been able to easily navigate the challenges of the pandemic's restrictions. For Black businesses in North Carolina, the impact of COVID-19 has been even more challenging. A recent study found that of the $12.3 billion allocated to the state's businesses in the Paycheck Protection Program, only $17 million was awarded to Black businesses. As a result of limited relief and capital, up to half of Black businesses in the state could potentially close before the pandemic is over. Napoleon Wallace is a founding partner of Partners in Equity, the small business and real estate investment firm who released that study. It examines what resources Black businesses may need to remain sustainable after COVID. Napoleon, welcome to the State of Things. Glad to be here. So the numbers that we stated in the introduction are pretty alarming. The North Carolina Business Council estimates the number of Black businesses in the state has decreased by 41 percent since the pandemic began. There are a number of contributing factors that we're going to talk about over the course of this segment. But I'd love to start with learning about um, the high number of Black-owned businesses that are sole proprietorships, so just one person running the whole thing and the impact that that has on making them particularly vulnerable. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so if uh, one, really great to be here to excited about that. Uh, what we found is that, you know, on average, really across the state, the average uh, black business has, uh, or 94% of black businesses have no employees. And what that means is that for a lot of those organizations, they're operating as sole proprietorships, in some cases operating as contractors. And because they uh, are relatively small, it means that in a lot of ways they don't have access to the type of capital mm-hmm. that a large business would have. You know, as part of our study, we found that when you look across all the businesses in the state, minority businesses or black businesses, you know, average household wealth, which we know is about 171,000 of white businesses or white households. And then the average black household has about a tenth of that. And the result is that for smaller businesses or black businesses, what you end up with is about only 35000 in operating capital versus 107000 when you look at a white business. And that means that during these rocky times, during the period of COVID, where we have significant headwinds, a lot of those businesses are going to face distress. Right. I mean, so you mentioned a number of things in there that are important to note. The la- the amount of startup capital that these businesses have and the discrepancy there between minority-owned businesses and white businesses, um, the amount that they, they have to rely on that kind of nest egg in these moments when things are challenging and not having that generational wealth to fall back on is a huge 
um, a huge detriment to these businesses, as well as their ability to get access to support during the pandemic. We had the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, which was one of the core pieces of federal aid to small businesses. And that was one of the the huge ways the, the federal government was trying to help out small businesses in the pandemic. But Black businesses were not able to take as much advantage of the program. Tell us why that was. Yeah. So, you know, the uh, Federal Reserve did a report, I want to say it might have been about two months ago, where they went in depth on the issues that were facing Black businesses as they were trying to access the Paycheck Protection Program. They listed a few very key items at a high level that they found to be very relevant. One is that most or many black businesses lack a strong banking relationship. And because of that, and the fact that the program was run through banks, it meant that there were a lot of businesses that simply didn't have access. In addition, they noted that for a lot of businesses, they were less likely to apply because they believe that they will be declined. In the industry, this is called a, uh, you know, uh, uh, business that uh, uh, is facing these issues. That's a very credible concern. And the last item that they noted was there was weakened fiscal positions of those businesses, which meant that when they were going in and giving an application, there was a lot of uh, issue around whether they uh, were able to provide the right financial information or otherwise. Okay, so uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of challenges there. Kind of the lack of existing relationships with banks that were um, helping distribute these loans. The fact that people are even less likely to apply, believing that they would be denied. Um, and I guess that brings me to, to the question of this summer and the attempts by um, the Black Lives Matter movement to lift the profile of black businesses in the state and to help people find them. Was that successful and did it have a long term impact on the businesses that you spoke with in terms of their ability mm-hmm. to um, affect their their bottom lines in the long term? Mm hmm. So, you know, through our report, we looked at about 250 businesses statewide and worked with 12 community-based business development organizations. And what we heard was there was a lift in terms of, you know, uh, the level of interest or support that was going to Black businesses as a result. And a result of uh, uh, you know summer of protests. However, in terms of were they getting all the needs that they had in terms of were the key priorities around access, the risk tolerant capital, whether it be equity or grants, or whether there was advisory services as opposed to as opposed to technical assistance. What we found is that for a lot of businesses, they saw a bump, but weren't sure that that level of interest was going to hold over the long term. 
in the Sparrow report, what we really want to prioritize is that right now we're in a moment where there's a great opportunity uh, to be able to grow many black businesses well beyond kind of a one or two person staff, but really be able to give them the capital grant as well as advisory services that they need to be able to scale their businesses, not only for the benefit of their companies, but also the larger economy. Yeah. I mean, what you mentioned there is is one of the things that I found really interesting in the report, which is that while it is important to help black businesses uh, establish relationships so they can have access to grants and to capital, um, we need to focus on other ways of serving them that don't just increase their debt. So giving them access to equity, giving them access to um, forgivable loans, giving them access to grants, things that aren't going to make you just further indebted in the long run and access to training that will actually increase your capacity to be resilient moving forward. So when you came up with your policy recommendations, maybe you could end by just reflecting on um, some of the things that you all recommend that would really help black businesses as we come out of this moment and transition to potentially into a recession, how to keep them resilient moving forward. So, you know, there were three key takeaways we had out the report. One is just recognizing exactly what you noted, that access to credit alone will not help businesses grow. You know, in many cases, there are lots of businesses that are able to access credit, but equity and grant capital is really what's needed in order to be able to grow a business in order to be able to scale and to be able to get the full vision of a entrepreneur in order for them to be able to execute their full vision. So we see that while there are lots of equity or debt opportunities out there, we do not want to look at that as a sole solution. Really like what happened with the Paycheck Protection Program However, it wasn't equitably distributed. In addition, our other recommendations include evolving from technical assistance into strategic advising, thinking hard about how can we find ways to be able to work alongside businesses, not just do transactional assistance around loan apps, or access other business needs, but really having partners that are working alongside entrepreneurs to help them grow their businesses. The model is much more of an equity-based model as opposed to a debt-based model. And then lastly, which you know is probably the biggest, is that you know we have to have access to markets, you know budgets, uh, statewide, uh, public private and quasi-public, those are the largest distributions of dollars that we have. And we believe that until there's uh, physical equity around those budgets, namely that suppliers that are diverse suppliers have equitable access to those budgets and the contracts, we're always going to be facing a little bit of headwind when it comes to growing 
black businesses. I'm going to have to stop you there because we're running out of time. But thank you so much to Napoleon Wallace. And we will provide a link so you can look at the whole report at our website, stateofthings.org. Stay with us just ahead as we'll talk to a few black business owners in North Carolina on the State of Things. This is the State of Things broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District. I'm Anita Rao. We are devoting the rest of today's show to profiling four black businesses and learning more about how they have been weathering throughout the COVID-19 crisis. Over 11 years of service, BU Cafe has become a staple of downtown Durham. It is a place known as much for its shrimp and grits as for its live music and vibrant ambiance. But what happens when a business model that relies on community gathering has to keep customers as socially distant as possible? Dorian Bolden is with us to talk about how his business has had to pivot since March. He's the owner of both BU Cafe in downtown Durham and BU Blue at Duke University. Dorian, welcome to the show. Hi, Anita. Thanks for having me. Of course. So tell me a bit about your original vision for BU Cafe. We have some listeners in Durham, but some folks from around the state who haven't been there. So describe your vision for BU and and your hopes for for what the business was going to become. Yeah. So, you know, prior to COVID, you know, most people knew BU as the uh, downtown staple of Durham. You know, we had done live music for so many years. Uh, come in for the the morning, um, you know, community gathering place to either have a business meeting or to just hang out with friends, great coffee, great breakfast. Uh, same thing with lunch. You know, we did live music, full bar. And so it really was this all around from morning all the way to late evenings. And so prior to COVID, we had already shifted our model to kind of focus a bit more on catering. And mm-hmm. so we had uh, discontinued live music for a little bit. And, um, and so right before COVID happened, we had started live music back up again, but just more in a streamlined manner. So it's always been this really cool, this hot spot for Durham, uh, 11 years strong, and it's a great coffee house and, again, where people can come and meet. So COVID hits, and, and you're now a business owner in March trying to figure out what to do. What did you, what did you first do? What kind of funding sources were you looking for at the beginning um, when everything was, was really uncertain? Yeah, you know, when COVID hit, it was it was crazy. It was insane. Um, and so I think the first thing was just trying to get through the initial shock of it all. Um, and kind of as we began to prepare and try to pivot, we thought about it like most other restaurants, like how can we maybe start shifting to uh, curbside uh, pickup, uh, to delivery service. But we had noticed, uh, unlike other restaurants, we weren't known for, say, a, a specific uh, food dish. So mm-hmm. when you think of most consumers who go to DoorDash or Grubhub or any of these third-party uh, delivery sites, you know you're typically going based on okay, what am I in the what am what am I in the mood for? Wings or pizza, or burger, or, you know, um, Asian food, whatever. And and so because we didn't have necessarily that specific cuisine, we weren't able to shift in the same way as other restaurants uh, that was more food specific. And so we were actually lost for about a good three, um, almost four weeks where we were coming together as a team having these kind of critical, um, you know, emergency meeting huddles every single day as we could figure out how to pivot. Um, And so that was kind of our our first step. And then, you know, in terms of trying to get funding sources, we, you know, uh, listened to Napoleon earlier about having the relationships. You know, we were fortunate after 11 years having a good banking relationship. We purchased um, our building that that we occupy a couple of years ago. So having that asset, we actually had a little bit of a small safety net with our bank and being able to provide a short-term uh, debt relief. 
but it was, again, short term to kind of get us through the first 30 to 60 days. And did you secure PPP funding? Was that something that was um, helpful for you? It was. Uh, you know, we uh, were able to get through the first round of PPP funding with with our business. And, you know, looking back on it, I recognize how we were definitely in a very unique situation that a lot of businesses, because, you know, we were talking um, to a lot of other restaurant tours during this time. I was, you know, just, just seeing how everybody was hanging and yeah, weathering the storm. And because we had the relationship with, uh, you know, Truist Bank, you know, BB&T, uh, they were able to work with us and we were able to get our PPP funds through uh, through the bank. You know, our BU Blue Coffee location, however, was with uh, Wells Fargo. And, you know, again, you can pretty much go online and hear the the, the challenges um, that, you know, a lot of people had because they weren't really distributing any PPP funds. So, yeah, we were fortunate, but it was definitely a roller coaster ride depending on the banking relationship and how close you were able to get in front of the line. I mean, that's so important to highlight, I think, is that based on the type of bank that it is and based on how big that bank is and how many other people they're trying to serve, it really made a difference in how much people were able to get a spot in the line that would help them access this funding that dried up pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think that that was surprising. Uh, and, and rather, actually, it was shocking. You know, you you hear about the bigger banks up north, you know, the J.P. Morgans, the Chase, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and, um, you know, Bank of America and Wells Fargo. And, yeah, it really came down to your more smaller local community banks that were the ones helping to drive the PPP funds. And I think a, a lot of us are kind of conditioned that, you know, we are with the big bank because of either we love the technology or the service. But, you know, I was fortunate that we had a relationship with Truist Bank and also seeing how the local banks responded uh, during PPP, you know, we ended up establishing a relationship uh, with mechanics and farmers as well. And so I think it actually exposed, uh, you know, the importance of having a relationship with a small local bank. I know at the beginning of, of all of this, you were, you know, working 18 to 20 hours a day trying to really think strategically about um, how to pivot the business. And you did spend a lot of time researching measures in other countries. And I'm curious to hear more about that and, and what encouraged you to look outside of the U.S. for possible solutions in the moment. Yeah, you know, so I, I'll have to give a plug to my alma mater at, uh, at Duke. Um, you know, being a Blue Devil, we always clown Duke about if you're a student at Duke, you're going to spend crazy nights studying in Perkins uh, <laughs> Library. It's always about just research papers and research. And it wasn't like I didn't realize Duke was a very research-oriented school. And it served me well throughout business and especially in COVID because you're trying to think of, okay, what in the world do you do? And you know, at the end of the day, is you know, everything it just goes back to knowledge uh, and seeking knowledge. And uh, I've always encouraged, you know, other business owners and entrepreneurs, it's like, make sure you're reading. And in this case, it was, okay, how do we research um, or how do I research and look at what other businesses are doing in specifically in Asia, but even in Europe, you know, Asia didn't have it nearly as bad as uh, the U.S., but clearly they were the first. Uh, Europe was, you know, getting hit hard. So if we could look at what other businesses were doing there and how they were successful, you know, you could find some really good, uh, you know, I think opportunities. And so you started seeing just the creativeness and the innovation um, from other business owners, whether they were 
shifting from, you know, uh, business to consumer to business to business, whether they were focusing more on the delivery side. Uh, you saw like different uh, makeup artists uh, and uh, designers doing more online training and teaching. A lot of the stuff that you're starting to see now actually mm-hmm. in the U.S., but the irony is they had already been doing that back in April. And so that was the thing about just trying to get a jump start on innovation and, uh, yeah, creativity. What has been the helpful pivot for you all? So you mentioned, you know, at the beginning, not having that key product to be able to tell people, hey, come get your takeout burger here. Um, what was the the key turning point for you all in, able to, in being able to be sustainable into this next quarter? Yeah. You know, for us, we when we came together, we finally got to a point where we recognized um, it was going to be a mental game. Um, you know, and we part of our company cultures were really big on you know, we work hard, we play hard, but, you know, when the going is tough, we have to really start figuring out how are we going to um, creatively go back to our roots of serving people. And part of this is also relationships. And so when we look back over uh, the past, you know, almost 11, well, now 11 years, we thought about the various relationships that we developed. And so picking up phone calls, uh, picking up the phone, so many phone calls and emails, to just try to see, okay, who can we help? Who can we serve? And we end up finding ourselves uh, helping, um, you know, Durham Public School System to deliver food to, to school kids. And so we've been able to kind of step into that role of being able to help provide um, food for kids and then moving to food for families. And it just went back to, you know, our core purpose in businesses, you know, to serve our customers, to serve each other. I mean, that every business is built on um, serving customers, you know, to solve a problem. And that's kind of what we went back to. And that's always been part of our, um, you know, our core purpose uh, with BU. And so we've been able to kind of build on that. And because of that, you know, and the fact that we've been fortunate, then how do we make sure we continue to push this lane of tackling food insecurity, which has been huge during COVID. And we recognize how we've been blessed during all of this. And so now with the launch of our uh, e-commerce site with BUcoffee.com, you know, percentage of those proceeds go back into tackling uh, food insecurity with the BU Food Project. And so being able to rely on our good efforts and, you know, our, our blessing of being able to weather the storm, right, how do we give back and help others? I'm going to bring in another guest to the conversation now and bring Dorian back in a little bit. Um, we're going to talk now with Justice McGee. So like dine-in businesses like BU, food trucks also rely on social gatherings in order to turn profit. Justice is the owner of Soul Fresh Spring Rolls, which was a food truck business when COVID-19 hit. He had to sell his food truck in October and is here with us to talk about how he has pivoted during the pandemic. Justice, welcome to the show. Hi, right, thank you for having me. So you had a ton of careers before you opened your food truck. You were an army paratrooper, a teacher in elementary and middle school, and then what? What led you to spring rolls? That seems like a big jump. I mean, I mean, you could say midlife crisis. <laughs> no, no, no uh, just you know, I, at the time I was kind of, I would say, just disenchanted with the educational system as a whole. So uh, it was kind of like you know. Before and you know, you always tell your students, you know, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. You can, you know, you can do whatever you set set yourself out to do. So, I I just kind of felt like, well, I'm telling my students this, you know, what about myself? So I, I really wanted to just one time just take a stab at doing something that I wanted to do, and then doing something that I really enjoyed. Not that I didn't enjoy, you know, 
uh, teaching and everything like that. But um, you know, I just I just always enjoy cooking and serving people, and making people happy and stuff like that. So um, the whole spring roll idea, I mean, the spring roll is just a vessel. You know, it's it's no different than uh, empanada or a burrito or anything else. It's just um, the certain way that you know we cook them. You know, we don't deep fry them. Um, they're cooked on cast iron skillet uh, using grapeseed oil. So, uh, you know, that was just the whole thing with that. And then, and also I wanted to give consumers something just a little healthy. Uh, you know, I, I don't always say, like, so fresh. We're not, like, like you know, at the top of the pillar of health, healthiness and health food. But you're definitely going to get some nutrition in every roll that you eat. Uh, we use locally sourced ingredients. Uh, we know when we can. You know, we work with a lot of local businesses, other food trucks to, you know, uh, we've done collaborations, you know, combining their their great ingredients, you know, with ours. So, um, yeah, that's so it's just been a, it's just been a fun ride. I mean, even being on the show right now is is just surreal. So I'm just blessed and thankful to even be here right now. Oh, well, we're happy that you're joining us. So we we mentioned in the introduction that you did have to sell your food truck a few months ago. So tell me about what led to to that decision. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a tough decision. Um, we started so fresh out of a tent, um, and basically kind of worked our way up to getting the food truck in 2018. And, you know, it, it was just constant, just going everywhere. I mean, we drive to Greensboro, drive to Greenville, Fayetteville, you know, all over, all over North Carolina, pretty much just trying to, you know, get our name out there and stuff like that. So in 2019, we really kind of, uh, kind of built a really great schedule. You know, we had some great breweries we go to here. And, um, you know, we had the Durham Food Truck Rodeo, uh, you know, Greensboro Food Truck Rodeo, you know, other big events. Um, then you had we had our corporate lunches, which is pretty much, you know, a lot of pharmaceutical companies or a lot of um, corporations kind of like an RTP area. They would have food trucks. So we were able to, uh, you know, have a few spots there, uh, you know, so pretty much that was our stick. We had, you know, going into 2020, we had a solid schedule. And actually in the middle of March, like when all this hit, um, we were we were really going to have like a really profitable month. You know, before I mean, we made profit before, but it was, you know, uh, a couple hundred dollars or something that just pretty much disinvesting back into the business. But in March, we we're going to have the Durham Food Truck Rodeo, which is our biggest event from like 2019 then we had some uh great breweries we had our good lunch spots so it was, you know it was going to be really good great so when when everything just started shutting down in the middle of march it was like oh man like wow so um we just kind of had to uh pivot to the next which which was a pivot to our next step which was actually um the week prior to that um the first week of march we had got uh we got approved by the state department of agriculture to sell the rolls frozen in the retail outlet. So um, that was going to be something we had just got approved. And that was going to be something we we're going to build on to maybe, you know, later in the year to kind of roll out the frozen line. But, uh, you know, with uh, everything gone, like, you know, everything got canceled. So we had no income coming in at all. And, you know, and, and as the guy Napoleon said earlier, and he was right, he, I mean, he, he hit the nail on the head with everything he was saying. Like when you're a small business, you don't necessarily have that, you know, reserve built up. You know, um, like I said, that that month would have been great. We would have been able to, you know, start actually building a reserve and kind of building on something. 
So but not having, have, yeah, not having that to fall back on. Yeah. So it's like, well, every, you have absolutely nothing coming in. So basically, uh, you know, it took a few weeks off to kind of figure out what was going on, just like anybody else. Because it was like, okay, your whole world is like literally flipped upside down. And, um, but at the time, you could kind of see it, especially in this industry, you could kind of see, you know, where we are now. It's, you know, a lot of the big events canceled, like a lot of the large public gatherings canceled. So with food trucks, you kind of knew, like, well, with all that stuff canceled, that's probably like a third of your revenue. And then, you know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of food trucks, you know, go to, uh, like I said, the corporate lunches. A lot of those places, people are working from home. So I'm not even sure if those are going to come back next year. I know uh, a lot of places right now, they're just saying, well, we don't know. So we're going to still cancel everything to June 2021. So Yeah. Well, um, I'm curious about, I mean, Dorian, you're still with us, um, the owner of BU Cafe. I'm curious to hear you both reflect as we end this segment on the impact of the Black Lives Matter protest this summer. I know there were a lot of lists circulating trying to elevate the profile of local Black-owned businesses. And I'm curious about the impact that had, whether it it caused any um, major sustainable uh new income sources for your business or whether it was just a brief bump? Dorian, maybe we can start with you. Yeah. Uh, and to Nap- again, Napoleon said it pretty well earlier. It was uh, a great bump. Um, and I think awareness for a lot of uh, just customers to, to generate business and to support black businesses. And so we did get a nice bump, um, but unfortunately it wasn't sustainable. And that was the uh, the only challenge is, um, you know, it was kind of a, um, during a short period of time that we, we saw a bump, but uh, then it kind of went back flat to where we were before that. Justice, I have just about a minute left, but given, yeah, given kind of that it was a temporary yeah. bump for, for a lot of folks, I mean, what are you looking for moving forward? Yeah, and honestly, that was, that was disappointing because it was great, you know, uh, June and July, you know, our social media, we got a lot of followers business was great but i don't know if it was election fatigue or just fatigue period but it was just uh you know it just kind of fell off so hopefully you know um we can still keep pumping up the awareness of you know to support black businesses like in in the way that's sustainable i'm not sure what that would be but you know hopefully that can get back to that prior level just ahead we will talk with two other local black business owners about how they are weathering the pandemic the owner of a nail salon and the co-founder of wonder puff cotton candy stay with us on the state of things This is The State of Things. I'm Anita Rao. Cotton candy evokes nostalgia. Amusement parks and state fairs, carnivals, and birthday parties. For many, it is a magical confection, airy enough to make you feel like you're floating. Jackie Morin leans into those sensations, spinning gourmet cotton candy in some of the dreamiest flavors imaginable. Jackie is the co-founder, along with her husband, Rem, of the Durham-based artisanal cotton candy company, Wonderpuff Cotton Candy. Jackie, welcome to The State of Things. Hello, good afternoon. How you doing? Good. So artisanal cotton candy, not a phrase I had ever even heard until about a year ago, but it has been having quite a moment around the world. Tell me about that. Yes. Um, everyone loves sugar. And, <laughs> um, I am so happy to be bringing it in the triangle. And me and my husband, Reem, we absolutely love what we do, uh, curating joy and making it accessible to our community and I just love candy so it I feel like it's my mission to spread it everywhere I possibly can. And you all really approach the the art of creating these flavors like food science really trying to blend flavors and and think about 
pairings really creatively. Tell me about that process of creating your flavors. Oh, yes. So we really wanted flavors to match our aesthetic and our brand and to connect with our community. So we like to think really hard and not really have the basic flavor of cotton candy that you would get in um, a state fair or in a festival. Um, And so we have our staple flavors that are so popular that we've had from the beginning. And me and Reen, we both decided, like, we're never going to take these flavors off the menu. So we have salted caramel, which is a mango. We have um, mango with a dash of chili lime and lavender. Uh, My personal favorite is uh, Haitian cake. Um, Reen made that one, and it is um, an ode to our heritage, our Haitian heritage. So that's really special. It's making me really hungry hearing about those flavors in the noon hour. Yes, yes. It's always time for cotton candy. Well, so we've been talking throughout the hour of some of the particular challenges of Black businesses, those that are run by just one or two people and and not necessarily having that nest egg built up because of generational wealth. I'm curious about your particular story and how you all built the startup capital to get this business off the ground. Well, Wonderpuff has been around for over three years, and I cannot believe how beautiful and successful we have become in such a historic time for humanity. Um, I never thought that cotton candy would give me sustainability um, in a time where everyone is facing exhaustion in every way, and we do not take that lightly. I feel like it's a calling. And, you know, to move with intention and enjoy. And so we're very, just very happy to be making cotton candy. And when we started, we were doing, like a lot of small business owners in the food industry, we were doing lots of markets and relying on the public. But when everything um, closed down and everyone was forced to be home, uh, we went and put everything online. And it just drove a lot of traffic and connected us with people outside of the triangle and people buy our cotton candy all over the country and it's absolutely magical we never thought that we would make hundreds of cotton candy every week and be shipping to durham and raleigh and new york city and beyond and you know we're just really honored I know that you all used a Kickstarter to get off the ground at the beginning. Is this a model that you would recommend to others? Does it give you freedom um, and and free you up from debt? Or or what does it mean for you financially to use that kind of crowdsourcing, community-funded model to get off the ground? Yes, most definitely. I'm a strong believer that we keep us sustainable. And when I mean we, I mean our people, our community, um, because other people clearly don't want to help small businesses and it's really up to us uh, to keep us sustainable and I am a firm believer in asking for assistance from your neighbor and so yes we did do a Kickstarter um, right before elections and we had succeeded our goal um, just a little over a week and it just really is a testament of just humanity and how much we just We just desire to love and want to take care of each other. And so, you know, I really can't wait to utilize our um, crowdfunding to build our future storefront in a couple of months. So you are planning to open a brick and mortar location next year. Um, 
so tell me a bit about that. B, uh, BU is also going to be expanding in that area, but but talk about um, the hopes for that brick and mortar. Yes, BU is going to be our neighbor. I'm very, very excited. So we will be having our very first storefront at the Boxyard RTP. And, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of wild because a lot of people would think, wow, you know, a storefront during this time. Um, but because we have an incredible business, an incredible brand, and like I said, everyone loves sugar and we're really great at what we do. Uh, we know in our hearts that we, we can be successful in creating a safe space for the community. Um, and we are very, very excited. Uh, last year, we had the opportunity to do a mini pop-up shop at the ATC American Tobacco Campus, and it was so successful that me and Reem were just like, wow, we can do this one day, and it will soon become a reality for us and our community. I'm curious about the kind of mentors that you turn to for advice and support. As a relatively new business owner, where do you go when you need advice on, on a decision or a possible change in your business? Well, in the beginning, I didn't have anyone. In the beginning, we did everything by ourselves. And um, that uh, that came with a lot, lots of challenges, which is weird because we do have the Internet and we have access to all this, um, you know, unlimited information. But when you don't know where to go, you don't know really who to ask and what to ask for. But we um, have been honored and privileged to work with the Helios Foundation, um, my incredible mentor, Gerard. Um, he's, in, he's just beyond incredible and has guided me in so much on how to properly um, operate a small business and it's because of people like him and small businesses just leaning on each other is why we are successful um, we often say that our success is not our own we do not own our success um, it's gifted by the people around us so I feel like you know when you see small businesses winning you know your community is winning as well I want to bring in one more guest to the conversation Jackie Morin is the co I'm speaking with Jackie Morin, the co-founder of Wonder Puff Cotton Candy, and I want to bring in Shine Carter now. Manicures often require as much imagination as making cotton candy, and there is no end to nail design innovation. But finding a nail technician who's a great fit can be challenging. Shine Carter is someone who understands the nuances of nail care and design, and she's the owner of Shine Diamond Nails in Asheville. Shine, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So as opposed to the other businesses we have been talking to this hour, you had only been open just about a month, I think, before the pandemic began. Is that right? Right. I think I became owner. Yeah, I became owner just a month before the pandemic. Oh, my gosh. What timing? So so what did that mean for you once the pandemic hit? I mean, you'd only been a month into kind of building your business. Um, that It was super scary. It was my, my first business that I've ever bought, ever ran. Um, I did work um, at the salon that I purchased. I worked there for the last, um, I want to say, like, I worked over the summer before, and then I had took a little break, and I came back. But I knew how business was, and I was super excited to see how things was going to go and that, you know, um, I really rely on tourists, and I was just super excited for all the tourists to come and just meet me, and, yeah, that didn't happen. And as opposed to things like cotton candy or coffee, there's not really a service that you can sell virtually. So what did you do? Right. I did um, I did some press-ons. Um, I would take like a couple people at my house, but I didn't really want a lot of people coming to my house. The product smells. There's lots of products, a big mess everywhere. I have kids. 
So I basically just um, I worked um, a CNA job that I had. I just pick up shifts at the nursing home to kind of cover the cost of my storefront. Luckily, my overhead was pretty low. So now are you back open full-time, or what do things look like at this moment? Yes, I'm back open full-time. And how are things going? Are you getting community support? Things are good. Um, Some community support um, was kind of there during the Black Lives Matter um, thing. People really wanted to support, but that was just a short-term thing. It kind of fell off. So I'm still kind of just... you know, like not being in the shop for those months, I feel like it, it put me behind on building clientele. And honestly, I'm just at the point to where I kind of don't even still know what to expect. Hmm. And I mean, we've been talking this hour about kind of potential ways to get relief, like federal funding or state funding. Has any of that been available or a resource for you? Um, I did work with Mountain BizWorks. And they were able to help me with um, some PPP money, but it wasn't until um, like the maybe the week before um, the second round it was going to close. Um, my business didn't qualify because I wasn't in business the year before. So that did um, they did kind of change those rules towards the end. And I was even though you know I was open short few months, so my funding wasn't very much. But I was appreciative of what I did get. Hmm. So Jackie Morin, the co-founder of Durham-based artisanal cotton candy company, Wonderpuff Cotton Candy, is is still with me. And I'm curious to have you both reflect on, as you look to the next year or so of your business, what kind of support would be helpful? We mentioned throughout this hour that this Black Lives Matter bump was significant in gaining some online following, but didn't really create any long-term massive change. Um, maybe I can start with you, Shine. I mean, and what what kind of support would be helpful in, in helping you create a sustainable business moving forward? Um, like Napoleon was said earlier, um, just like some grants, things mm-hmm. that um, we wouldn't necessarily have to pay back. Yeah. How about you, Jackie? Yeah, well, definitely. Grants that are easy to apply. And also people who don't shop local and who shop you know, online at like big corporations, if they can be more conscious of what they consume and put their dollars literally back to their community, I feel like that would help so many small businesses, both black, brown and beyond. Yeah, being able to get those bigger contracts. I mean, that was something that was in um, Napoleon's report was that, you know, the state still is is really um, lacking in giving contracts fairly to black and minority owned businesses in the state. So being able to get those big projects and get those big sales um, obviously could be a huge make a huge difference for smaller businesses. Shine, have you gotten the kind of support from at least friends and family that you were expecting um, I feel like it could be better, but um, I do appreciate any support that I do um, have from my friends and family. Um, I just know it's a hard time for everyone right now. Yeah. Are there other Black business owners in Asheville who have formed any kind of network to share information or resources? Um, there are some, yes. Is there anyone that you turn to in particular to get mentorship? Um, I turn. I just turned to Mountain BizWorks. They really um, work towards minority businesses and helping. They did help me do a lot of things to start up my business and like a small business loan. Um, I, but I wouldn't look for any more loans because that's 
not going to help my business by go- keep going into debt. Right, exactly. Like we talked about earlier in the hour. Jackie, do you have any advice that you would give to aspiring Black entrepreneurs, maybe those folks who are still hoping to get off the ground? Yes, loving your product and, and what you do. Um, when me and Reem first started Wonderpuff, our intention was to be profitable second and, you know, be successful with our community and making really important connections. Um, for me, it's all about joy. Um, there's a lot of, you know, hurt and pain in the world. And I just kind of want to be everyone's super hype woman. And so loving your brand very much where people are inspired and they cannot wait to put their dollars towards that. Um, you know, you have to love your product and then love the people that buy your product, uh, most importantly. How about you, Shine? Say the question again. Any advice that you have for aspiring Black entrepreneurs? I mean, you're you're new into it. <laughs> so right. Yeah, so I would definitely just say, yes, like she said, love what you do. You have to, to love it, and you just have to look for support for the people that are just genuine and willing to come. Like, don't force it from anyone. It will be there. You have to stay consistent. Don't give up. Just keep working day in and day out. I want to thank you both for joining us. Jackie Morin is the co-founder of Wonder Puff Cotton Candy. Shine Carter is the owner of Shine Diamond Nails in Asheville. And you can find more about their businesses and all the other ones we talked about today at our website, stateofthings.org. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. North Carolina Public Radio is a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Anita Rao.